0: Hello and welcome to the Scottish Rock Podcast, the official podcast of the Scottish Rock Garden Club. I'm your host Connor. As always, be sure to check out the Scottish Rock website at www.srgce.net for the most recent information on shows, lectures, the Scottish Rock Journal and the International Rock Gardener. Okay, so this is the fourth episode of the Scottish Rock Podcast and today we're joined by Alex and we're going to talk about cushion plants. Hello, Alex. Hi, Connor. How's it going? You alright?
1: Yeah, I'm well, thanks. Just keeping indoors, keeping outdoors when there's no rain. But um, yeah, it's a tough time for everyone, I think.
0: Yeah, definitely. So today we're going to talk about cushion plants but I'm just going to talk a bit about your background as well because you've been involved in horticulture for a very long time.
1: Well I've been involved in it depends what you class as horticulture I mean I've done alpines as a hobby since I was a young boy since I was 10 Um, so it's been 14 years now for me. Um, Yeah just started off by wanting to grow miniature tufa displays. Um, I remember going to my my grandparents local group show seeing a miniature Chufa garden I just sort of fell in love with it I thought it was really cool looked like a miniature mountain I wanted to try and recreate one um, so my grandparents took me down to um, Ingleson's nursery which was obviously closed it actually closed about through, <laughs> about a month after I went there uh, picked up a few last plants they had and a few bits of Chufa and mm-hmm. potted one up
0: So is that who got you into it then? You have got you got interested in it through your family?
1: Yeah, I mean, we always used to go because sort of it's sort of, the local group show is kind of a family event. And then any people who just fancied coming along who were interested in the local area, we always used to go. <laughs> I actually used to go for the raffle and the cake. But um, uh, yeah, just one year I saw this miniature Chufa garden. And I just thought it was really awesome. Um, and that sort of started it off. I thought that's where it would stop. And then I got pulled into going into lectures and monthly meetings. And I just got more and more hooked.
0: Yeah, I think that's normally how it happens. You'll see something, and then and then that kind of sparks interest as well. Whether it's I know people yeah. that have seen uh, uh, Jim German, for example, saw Saldanella when he was a boy, and that's that's what got him interested in it.
1: Yeah, I think there's always got to be something. Um, I mean, mine just divulged so quickly. It unravelled from chufa gardens to cushion plants to foliage plants um, to essentially now anything alpine. Um, but obviously Cushion Plants is where it began and where I, I try and specialise uh, as best I can. Um, so, so, yeah, what it's adopted locally.
0: so what is a Cushion Plant then? What's your definition of it?
1: Um, I probably would have told you a couple of years ago it was anything that forms the perfect dome um, in a pot or garden setting. In a pot, I suppose you, it could form the perfect dome. You can trim it back and I know a few secrets to keeping it in good shape um i think in the garden it's just one that forms nice little hummock tight hummocks and um, crawls over rocks if it wants to often need crevice conditions for good drainage um and often the trickier plants to grow in the garden i think open garden certainly but now i'd probably say it was anything that forms compact rosettes um I mean, I've got a lot of plants which people would call cushions and nurserymen describe as cushions. I wouldn't, call them tufts. They're quite flat. Uh, the rosettes aren't neatly aligned, so they form that that sort of perfect structure. But I'd probably still class those as cushions now. Um, yeah, anything that's sort of compact and rosette forming. Um, but obviously, people would probably disagree with me and say it's the, the sort of plants like your Dionysias and your compact Androsyces that form... A nice, tight dome <laughs> um, in a pot,
0: yeah, and so you mentioned a couple of species there, like Dionysia and uh, um mm-hmm. but there's a lot of different species and lots of different regions of the world that form these dense cushions and mats,
1: yeah, I mean, I've seen the um in their evolutionary sense they they formed as a result of being. Uh, in high mountain, mountainous conditions and high wind and light, and they had to compact themselves, um, which is why they occur across across the world in mountain ranges, simply as an adaptation to the wet, the cold, and the windy. Um, simply by keeping themselves compact, I think they they prevent rotting off and being blown over.
0: Yeah, there seems to be a bit of a misconception about some cushion plants because people think they're very delicate and you can gather that from the name cushion i suppose mm-hmm. but they're incredibly tough plants they're grown in really harsh brutal conditions up in mountains and they've formed this very dense um protective system to protect them from the elements
1: yeah um i have to say i think the whole uh, i think there's a lot of cushion plants which are are soft especially when people grow them in in cultivation Um, I don't know what the reason for that is, other than maybe it's because they're kept under protection in a greenhouse where they're allowed to grow soft um, and sort of leggy. I think uh, a lot of nurserymen grow the sort of saxifragas and androses. They try and grow as many as they can outside because they do form better plants. They do tend to keep harder and tighter um, and more compact. And that's, that's what I've tried doing myself. I built myself a big open frame last summer. Um, and i've got basically 90 percent of my cushion plants in that now because i found they do grow more compact and tighter and more to natural form if they're in the greenhouse they just they sort of go soft um but obviously there are plants which you, <laughs> you couldn't risk growing out in the english weather even in an open frame like dionysia because they just simply wouldn't survive
0: yeah um so you've we originally first met when you were at uh, the botanics RBGE in Scotland in Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. Um, you've now went back home and have, have started to really develop your own collection in your own garden. Yeah, yeah. So, what kind of plants have you have you got? What kind of plants were your focus? Was it cushion plants, or have you tried to bring in different choice plants that you've selected?
1: Um... Well, I mean, I've been going to shows again for over 10 years now, national shows. I mean, until recently, it was mainly southern shows. But um, my year in Edinburgh allowed me to go to a lot of the North English shows and all the Scottish shows. Um, and now being of an older age and being able to drive and have my own vehicle, I can um, go further afield and see all the different plants that are grown around the UK. Um, after going to Patagonia as well in December 2018, I was able to see and fall in love with many of the treasures that grow in the wild there. Um, and I've just sort of picked, handpicked things I've seen in people's gardens, people's collections uh, in the wild um, and just sort of try to find uh, plants to grow, plants to buy, plants to grow from seed, cuttings. Um, I've been very fortunate. I've always um, been very lucky with the people in the within the AGS and Scottish Rock have always been very generous to me and given me lots of um, plants and seeds of rare plants and things and trusted me to try and grow them on. And I've tried to do my best to do that. Um, but certainly that last summer when I returned from Edinburgh with a wealth of knowledge and experience, um, it's the first time I felt like I had the confidence to grow my own plants from seeds and cuttings. Um, and back myself to do that and so far it's been an overwhelming success uh, isolation certainly helped I haven't been able to leave the house or garden so
0: <laughs> my yeah.
1: plants have had my undivided attention yeah
0: that's been the one positive I think out of all this
1: <laughs> yeah absolutely
0: <laughs> yeah so you've you've managed to go to uh, Patagonia which I've always wanted to I've, I've really had an interest in the plants there uh, it's got an incredibly diverse interest in ecology and flora there that's um, quite different from the rest of the world as well. Do you have particular favourites that you've seen or some stuff that you wanted to see?
1: Well, when I went out there, I have to say, I didn't know an awful lot of Patagonian plants. I tried to learn before I went there. Um, the, the few Patagonian plants I did grow I absolutely adored, like uh, Benthamiella, uh, um Calcellaria, um so a few rosette and cushion forming plants and a lot of the parisias i tried to gr- had tried to grow um one's now baccatea lanagera um so sort of compact cushion forming south american species uh, but i didn't really overall think too much of the rosalip violas and the, the sort of plants that people consider sort of creme de la creme treasures of the alpine world um I can tell you, after three weeks in Patagonia, that completely changed. <laughs> and now all I'm trying to grow is all these sort of amazing plants, um, the Viola. I mean, it was a Viola specialist tour we went on. It was Violas and Volcanoes, um, led by David Hazelgrove and Daniel Montesinos, um, who was our botanist, and they were just fantastic. Um, we saw, I think, all the species on the the target list and more um and each one was so unique and so wonderful to find i mean they're so tiny as well people don't realize the photos make them look um like big big succulents but most of the time they're sort of the size of a 50 pence coin um and then the flowers are even tinier but um when you get down on the floor of a volcanic slope and you're taking it a photo with your camera it's just sort of it's nothing i've never experienced anything quite like it
0: yeah, it sounds wonderful. And yeah, you touched on the Rosalute violas, which are just an incredibly fascinating type of plant from pretty much every aspect as well. They form these little towers um, and there's, there's a massive diversity of species, but they're pretty much mm. impossible to grow in cultivation thus far, although there's a few good growers that are that are trying
1: yeah i think there's quite a few people with the last year or so who are really trying at them um i think the the difficulty with them is all the material that you can get hold of is is from seed i think people have tried from cuttings and i I don't think it's been successful at all in the sort of 20 30 years people have been trying i've read all the books and research i can on them it's quite limited um and seed germinating from seed is difficult because they the conditions they live in are so different uh, um how we grow most of our alpine plants from seed in the garden, in pots. Um, It's an uphill struggle.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so as for some of the plants um, that you've started from Chile as well, so what's the kind of growing conditions that you have? You said you were growing them outside in an open frame.
1: Yeah, I experimented. I was lucky that I got fairly good germination and, when I first sowed my uh, Patagonian stuff last summer um, and I was, exp- I expected to get nothing from it. And I got five seedlings of Terrassa humilis, uh, which is a malvaceae It's very, very nice compact plant. You saw quite commonly throughout the Patagonia trip um, on sort of between the steppe and the, the higher regions. Um, and I was lucky enough to get five germinated seed out of 10 seeds Um, so I potted them up and after building the frame, I, I felt like it was a risk worth taking And I put two in the frame and I kept three in my greenhouse. Um, and as the new year came round, I had one left in the frame. One had died and, um, two had died in the greenhouse. So I only had two left, one in the frame, one in the greenhouse. Um, I then realized I had an offset from the one in the frame, which I, I managed to untwined when i repotted it and i got another plant from that um so i had two in the frame and one in the greenhouse now um and sort of five months on from that moment the ones in the frame are growing very true to nature they have grown very very well very compact um they seem to prefer it I i think it's the ventilation um there's not a great deal of difference i don't think in sunlight um i actually built the frame mainly for shade protection in the summer because last year I had big problems with uh, plants getting burnt in the greenhouse and um, just way too high light levels. So I built the frame to try and shade, provide a bit more shade so I could try and grow some woodland stuff. Um, But the Patagonian stuff seems to really like it in there at the moment.
0: Yeah, we were when you were at the Botanics in Edinburgh, we both, I think, at the same time of always had a, a deep interest in Dionysia and they've got a pretty good collection at the Botanic Gardens in Edinburgh and you've, you've managed to work with that collection and then you went to Gothenburg Botanic Gardens as well to to kind of get further involved with that particular genus.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've grown lots and lots of Dionysia over the years. I've killed lots and lots of Dionysia over the years, um, as has any grower, even the best ones. Um, and I was lucky because in my local group and in national shows, um, people always presented me with these lovely plants that they grew excess of. Um, and I was fortunate enough to have a, quite a substantial collection at one stage. Um, sadly, after I went to university, the, the collection sort of died away. And that, that's through no fault of anyone's really. It's just, it's a special, special genus that requires special attention and conditions um, And going to Gothenburg was just amazing because I was able to see how they succeed. I think uh, Gothenburg has every single Dionysius species in the world, except for one. Um, And they've even gone the last few years to various areas in the Middle East. They're able to access um, and have collected species, which have been newly described. Um, So, They've they've got they've got every Dionysia basically, and that they're growing them to a ridiculous level. Um, and I was able to see how and what they did to do that. Um, stage one is what they're growing them in in the pots. Um, no loam or soil whatsoever. It's a mixture of pumice, clay, perlite, bone meal, um, various mineral rocks, um, and it's just they just feed on every watering.
0: Yeah, it's, it's a very interesting system and also a lot of it has grown inside under UV light as well. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, they had UV lights installed a few years ago, I believe. Um, but I'm under the impression that although that has probably helped uh, the cushions grow grow faster maybe and grow more compact, I don't, I'm not sure. Um, but I think Gothenburg have always had a really, really strong collection of dynasties growing well before the UV lights. So I think it's probably because of the way and the nature, they they, they keep them in um, as free draining a compost as you can ever make. No, no loam whatsoever, nothing to hold up the water, just let it fall through the pot. Um, and not just that, but feed, put water, uh, feed in the water every time they water the plants.
0: And we, we touched on propagation a bit as well. So, mm-hmm. um, Cushions are quite interesting plants because you can break them apart and then you can make lots of cuttings from a singular plant if you want to do that. And other methods, you can take off rosettes and then use them as cuttings if the rosette is suitable to do so. Have you got a preference?
1: Uh, It's interesting. Going back to Gothenburg, obviously, I spent a long time a week there and they they asked me what I want to specialize in. and I said I wanted to learn how to propagate Dionysias because I tried so many times with cuttings and found it really difficult. Um, and rule number one for them was you can only use pumice to do it—a mixture of a coarse and a fine pumice. Um, so there's lots of air spaces and the roots can get in easily and quickly. Um, so I've been using their technique, but uh, they also select rosette material from towards the middle of the cushion. Um, which I found really strange because I've always taken rosettes from the outside of the cushion, the new growth, um, and that way it doesn't leave holes in the middle. Um, but the way they they told me to do it is take rosettes you think are good, woody, strong-stemmed rosettes, take them off, make sure you've got a nice long stem on them, um, and push the cushion back together using thicker top dressing and from underneath, um, which did definitely work. I don't have the sort of sizes or quality of the plants that they do to, to be able to do that. So I always take my cuttings from uh, around the edge of my cushion, because um, I know it's the new growth. Uh, it's more likely to root. Um, and I, I do that with essentially every cushion plant or rosette forming plant I have. Um, I've certainly taken on board their advice by using pumice. I used to use just different sharp sands and silver sand from golf courses at one stage. I don't think it particularly works very well. Uh, I think a lot of cushion plants being hairy and woolly and tricky to grow in moist conditions. I think they, a lot of them just rot off quite quickly from botrytis. So um, I think the pumice certainly helps with that and st- stops any fungal infections.
0: Yeah, that seems to be the biggest threat for quite a lot of cushion plants. Is the scorch, which you said that you had an issue in kind of early spring or uh, in that winter time as well, when the sun's going down or coming up. Um, yeah. and then, yeah, botrytis as well, and it has to have good air ventilation. That's a key factor.
1: Yes, um, another interesting observation I made when I was at Gothenburg um, is they take the lid off their propagators every morning for a few hours um, so the moisture build doesn't build up too much inside the uh, propagator lid um, and that's something I've been doing as well, giving air to my cuttings every day, every morning um, in a dark shaded area. So I put them in underneath my plunge bench in my greenhouse. Um, so they're protected from rain and they're in a dark shady area in the corner and they get a bit of air every day for a couple of hours. So they don't, it doesn't become too humid.
0: Yeah. And watering uh, watering's another key feature for a lot of cushion plants, Those. A lot of, um, how would I say, uh, different opinions on how to water certain plants, specifically alpine plants in general. But mm-hmm. for cushions, if you water them overhead, you know you're looking at uh, a very angry caterer uh, if you do it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it depends on the species. I mean, I've I've tried to grow the tricky raulias from New Zealand, and um, I was lucky enough to meet people in Scotland who who tried the same. Um, including Ian Young who was your guest on the second second episode um, and he told me he used to water his rowlier Eximia which he showed and got prizes with overhead every every summer to keep it cool um, and I just I couldn't believe it but it must be a system that works um, I've been less caring I would say about the watering of my cushions now after that um, I think to, in terms of keeping watering levels up I've 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 decided now to pop virtually my entire collection of cushion plants in a very very high percentage of grit and pumice compost uh, i think my pump compost is about 10 to 15 percent and the rest of it is a mix of pumice vermiculite perlite clay um and and chick grit uh sometimes lava if i'm using patagonian plant i'd replace the pumice and the grit with lava um by essentially growing all my potted plants now in a sort of eighty five percent grit and pumice um and that allows the water to essentially fall through the pot quickly um so the cushion avoids as as much water as possible um but that doesn't mean I have to water more frequently at the moment I'm watering nearly every other day um just being a little bit cautious because obviously I'm repotting a lot of plants and pricking out a lot of seedlings as well. So I've got to be careful the amount of water I'm giving them. So I don't, they don't damp off. Um, but in terms of watering from overhead, I try to, I avoid it at all costs. I always try and pot up my plants. So there's a nice ring around the edge of the pot, between the plant and the edge of the pot. So I can water around it. Um, yeah, it's, it's difficult because I know it's quite obvious that some of these saxifrages and androsaces and, um some of the patagonian stuff it, it does survive outside in the english weather no problem so there's there's no reason for you to water around the plant why not water overhead um obviously i'm growing a lot of my plants to put into ags shows so by watering around the plant rather than over the top of it i suppose you're reducing any risk of of damp and rot um which is why i would do it but i have become a, maybe a bit lax a few years ago, I'd be being very, very careful to make sure I didn't get any water on any of my cushions. Um, whereas now, if I see a couple of droplets, I'm sort of like, well, I'm sure it'll be OK. And often that seems to be the case. Um, obviously, Dionysius is just an exemption. You just ignore all that advice and you would you would have to be very, very careful with the amount of water you're putting on and around them altogether. Um, they don't tolerate any damp
0: Um, so where are you, you're growing them inside, are they in sand plunges or have
1: you just... Yeah, changed? I've got, I've got my greenhouse has a plunge, um, which I put all sort of my, my favourites, my treasures in the plunge. Um, sadly, it's only a four, four, four by five greenhouse. It's really small. So I've only got one plunge on one side um, and then I've got two small spaces either side with a crate um, and I keep things in, in the crate, but they're not plunged. Um, my open frame is all plunged in sand. Um, and I think that also benefits them massively Um, my cold frame where I keep all my pricked out seedlings and my smaller plants um, and a few excess plants which which can tolerate British winter Um, there's no sand in there, they're simply in trays uh, ready to move around my collection essentially
0: and then probably one of the most um, scary moments of uh, working with cushion plants is potting on for a lot of this stuff particularly Dionysia I know a lot of people that get very scared <laughs> of potting yeah.
1: on Yeah I'm not surprised I've had my fair share of uh, close shaves with Dionysias I'm, I'm sure I've, I'm the reason the Botanics lost so many last year when I was repotting them all um, no it wasn't too bad actually I was quite happy with the success we had um, yeah it's tricky Gothenburg and Edinburgh the, the rule is if it's in a clay pot You break the clay pot as carefully as you can as to not damage what's inside the pot, the root or the soil. Um, As soon as you break any of the soil or root off from that, from that potted plant, you're essentially risking killing it. Um, So you sacrifice the pot so you can repot the plant into something bigger. I sometimes do that. Obviously I'm limited on the amount of pots I have and, and the number of clay pots. So a lot of mine are in plastic. Um, and you can't really do that. You can't. I don't have a sharp enough pair of scissors to cut out the plastic pots every time. Um, and I, I just I always water before, just to give it a, a not a thorough watering, but enough water that it sort of all clings on together. Um, I'm just careful. I just tip the pot up gently and make sure it taps out all in one go. There's nothing stuck to the sides or anything, um, and then prepare the pot. Um, it's going into with sort of mold so i know the pot i'm i'm currently got the plant in just before i'm tapping it out i mold into the new pot so i've got the exact size um and then it it becomes a much simpler job when you're putting the the whole mold of the plant in the soil and the root into the new pot um you've already got the prepared size mold already so it just sort of goes in nice and easy and there's little damage most of the time obviously that doesn't work sometimes the roots aren't strong enough or the soil's too wet or too dry uh, things happen and root gets torn off and you just sort of take a gamble and hope it repairs itself sometimes they do sometimes they don't um i find dynises and drabers are less forgiving than a lot of other plants um and a lot often in those cases if, if that does happen um i take as many cuttings from those plants as i can um, more often than not, when I repot my plants, it's prime opportunity to take ample cuttings because you've got the, the plant and the cushion without all the top dressing. You can get underneath it with a nice, sharp pair of scissors and take the cuttings.
0: Yeah, it's good advice. Is there a particular time? Do you do it in active growth or would you wait until it's dormant?
1: Or well, people say, people tell me different things over the years, and everyone seems to have their own technique. I'm always in conversation with lots of growers of cushion plants and they were telling me, oh, maybe I, I do it like this or I do it like that. And it's interesting to see what everyone does. And I think a lot of people now are trying to learn from each other and see if they can um, figure out the key to success, so to speak. Um, but I think it's, it's all independent on the conditions you have and the, the supplies you have to do it. Um, I, I, from my experience at Edinburgh, where they took cuttings all year round in a heated, heated propagator, Um, I don't have the luxury of a heated propagator, but I have taken cuttings since February and I've had rooting success since April. Um, I've just done my second batch of cuttings this time, nearly triple the amount I took in February because February was just an experiment. I'd usually take cuttings late April, um, a small amount. And then I take most of my cuttings middle, late May, um, and hope that the ones I did in April had rooted so usually I, I take my cuttings sort of early summer whereas this year I've taken them <laughs> early spring and, and late spring um, if I have success or failure with this current batch I will do another batch come May, June July
0: Yeah and as for the, the future we were chatting about yesterday actually um, just catching yeah. up about things um, so you're talking about going to shows as well and showing a lot of these plants, especially I know for a fact you've got a lot of unusual plants that you've grown from seed. Is that then yeah. the kind of new experiments in the future? And we're going to get some more trips to some more interesting place to try and look at these plants in the wild?
1: Absolutely. I'd love to go and explore more of the world. Um, I'm hoping I can go and see more of South America. I've always had a keen interest in uh, Not a Triki, which is a Malvasi. Sadly, in cultivation it's limited to one or two species. I've grown the the one species now for over a year, eighteen months, and um, it's it's grown really well. It flowered brilliantly last autumn. Um, I was able to pick up another small plant at a show um, last autumn as well and uh, I've managed to propagate my larger plant and made ten cuttings, which all all did root um, from February. So I'm, I'm really pleased that I'm able to grow those. Um, yeah, I, I just hope I'm able to propagate all these the rare rare plants I do grow. Um, I've, I've been lucky that Gothenburg were very kind and generous, and uh, I took a few cuttings home which have rooted, including Rowley and Mammularis, which is a tricky New Zealander. I'd love to go to New Zealand and see the um, vegetable sheep and the sort of woolly and wonderful foliage plants they have there, as well as the sort of... Myosotis that grow, um, the Ranunculus that grow there. Um, there's many places I want to go. I want to go to see some of the Dionysias, um, but I also want to see some of the more basic Alpine areas like the Dolomites and the Alps, um, which are more close to home, um, because that's where it really started for me, sort of European, saxifraga and androsace.
0: Yeah, there's so many good places as well. And I know you're quite good friends with Martin, who we do hope is recovering. Um,
1: Yeah, I really hope so. Um, I'll send send my best for him. Um, I I don't have any updates on how he's doing, but I I hope he's stable and and recovering now. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, he's a mastermind behind South American plants, but really every plant Martin grows is outstanding. And you see it on a show bench and you think, oh, he's Mr. Patagonia. And then, all of a sudden he's got Daphne Modesta and Daphne, um, oh, he's got, he had a three pan of Daphne's, which were just wonderful. And then I met him in 2015 at the London show, which was sadly the last ever London show the AGS put on. Um, and he got a certificate merit with Asperula Arcadiensis. And he said, well, oh, it's been in the back of my greenhouse for years. Don't know what to do with it. Um, and I've, I don't think that plant has ever won a higher, higher prize ever since. <laughs> yeah.
0: I've seen photos of uh, Peru as well. We spoke briefly about Peru mm-hmm. a year ago, which has an incredibly interesting flora that's that's quite unusual as well. And then of course there's the Himalayas for quite a few cushion plants and just exquisite range of different plants as well.
1: Yeah, so my grandfather went on uh, numerous expeditions. Um I think he went with Kenneth Cox a couple of times, um, the rhododendron grower. Uh, my grandfather grows a lot of rhododendrons and things from Tibet. Um, he's tried his whole life. They're obviously very tricky to grow in cultivation, um, but he gives them a go in his sort of hot Kent woodland garden. Um, but in recent years, I've I've seen more and more plants I've I've grown in my collection, and and I've researched and realised they also came from Tibet. Um, That's some really nice androsaces and. And some rarer saxifraga you see you don't see so much in cultivation. Um, so I'm I'm quite keen to go to Tibet myself now. Um, and certainly the Middle East, try and see some of the Dionysias if it's possible. New Zealand to see some more of the lovely silver cushions, and like we were discussing Peru to see some more nototriki and Viola.
0: Mm-hmm. It's a wonderful thing. So So what's dream? Yeah. Good dreams. Though. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so what's the future for you what's the plans
1: um, just keep doing what I'm doing really I'm, I'm sort of building up my collection from scratch um, I've sown over 200 pots of seed last winter uh, in order to really give it a good go and um, try and grow plants to show really I've, I've only got a small garden I made a small rockery which has spaces left in it so I will experiment and plant excess and surplus out there um, sadly, I was hoping to sh- share a lot of what I'd produced from seed, um, which I didn't don't have space for, which is proving an issue now, um, because obviously we're in isolation and there's no shows until next year, it looks like. Um, so I'm going to have so many excess plants over winter. I just hope they all survive outside in unprotected conditions, really.
0: Yeah, I know you had a number of talks that you were going to do as well that they've all been cancelled.
1: Which yeah i had a i had three lectures booked in um and they've all been cancelled and i was i was going to do a lecture for my local group as well um I have a i've have a couple of lectures up my sleeve one on Patagonia trip which was just phenomenal and the photos in that um are quite good if i say so myself um but also i've i can i've i've created a lecture on on the basis of my experience. As the Alpine Alpine trainee, the first Alpine trainee based in Edinburgh, but going to Gothenburg um, and lots of other interesting places like Branklin Gardens, um, Ian Christie's garden, which is phenomenal, and uh, Sue and George Simpson Watt's garden, which we we both went together and enjoyed the day there. Yeah. Um, so I've got I've got a few talks I can do. I've also been really interested in trying to set up. So not so much lectures, but um, doing workshops. I think now I've gained so much experience from so many different sort of specialists. So I'd like to sort of share that experience and knowledge so people can succeed in propagating alpine plants, particularly from cuttings and grafts. Um, spent a lot of time with some of the best Daphne grafters, Ian in Christie and Petra Palkova from the Botanics. Um, practiced a lot with them. I'm doing Daphne cuttings and grafting. Um, And then spending time with Elspeth at the Botanics and Johanna Marika at Gothenburg doing sort of cushion plant cuttings and having moderate success already myself at my home. I I wouldn't mind sort of sharing what I can do and see if people can replicate that and succeed themselves.
0: Yeah, that sounds perfect. I can put the details for um, Alex as well for those that would want to get in touch with him to try and do some maybe workshops or stuff like that or, or lectures as well I can put that information in the podcast blog but, um, okay, great. but yeah that would be perfect so thank you for coming on the, the episode as well that was a, a a fascinating look at cushion plants which have always been one of those kind of groups of plants that I've had an interest and in. they're just a fascinating form as well um, I recently was at Inverview Gardens up north in Scotland and they had a Myosotis ulvanaris outside which had formed this perfect tennis ball shape outside which was just yeah fantastic to see as well and then the more you look into it there's more plants as well, there's incredible um out there and then just ridiculous plants from Patagonia like the Calciolaria Uniflora and well, yeah. So there's just some exquisite stuff out there as well that really needs to be grown and really needs to be shared, um, especially the experience that you've had.